Michael Phillip. Corey. What's up, man? Brother. Welcome. Welcome. Thanks, man. Thanks. It's been too long. It really has been way too long. Yeah, I can't even th- I can't even think of when the last time we potted is, but for anyone that is unfamiliar, we've done about 300,000 pods over the years. And people and, think that's um, an exaggeration, but mm-hmm. it's probably an underestimate. Most of Apple's hard drive space <laughs> in yeah. their servers is or is just recordings of us talking. Yeah. Um, but it's good to have you back, man. And um, the, also the show name changed since you were on, I think, too. So there's that same show, but uh, new energy, you know? Yeah, I could feel I could feel the uh, qualitative difference upon <laughs> upon entry for sure. I was like, this is not this is not hustling or astral anymore. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Um, man, well, you know, we were chatting a little bit beforehand about a couple of things, but let's, let's, uh, let's dive into one. Um, and that is that you mentioned that you have a lot of thoughts around Andre 3000 and his new record called a new blue sun, which is incredible. You know, not that I need to, uh, give caveats here, but I've been, you know, some people may be new to the style of music he's making because, um, you know, he's obviously a, a popular figure that, or a historical figure in music. And, and, you know, people might hear that for the first time because it's him making it. Um, but I will say as someone who has been listening and creating music like that for 20 years, um, it's an incredible achievement. You know, the, the yeah. record, just the musicality, take, take him away take his identity out of it. The record is amazing. You know, it just, just on its own. Um, so much less it being him is, uh, quite, quite impressive, but, uh, how did it land for you? Yeah. I actually approach from the other way because to me, him being the one who produced that music is the, is one of the most interesting parts of the phenomenon that is that album because it should not exist. You know what I'm saying? Like uh-huh. it, a guy who grew up in inner city Atlanta to a, you know, single mother in that environment, that is not a, that, that there's no barometer for that. And mm-hmm. the fact that that's where he wound up is utterly fascinating to me and incredibly inspiring because when it's an example of so many things and one of the things that's an example of that's really profound to me is a functional example of what jung called individuation like becoming a unique being that is fully comfortable and knowledgeable about itself mm-hmm. and does not care what the outside world thinks because it's operating from this deep place of psycho-spiritual knowing that Jung called the capital S self. And it's it's funny because like the first fucking song is called like, I swear to God, I wanted to make a rap album or whatever. Uh-huh. But, and he could have, right? Like he easily could have just faked his way through it and made something amazing that everybody would have adored him for, but he didn't do that. And that shows that he does not need that external approval. And getting out what was you know, aching to come out of his soul, for lack of a better term, was more important to him. And don't get me wrong, I enjoy the music too, but I enjoy it a lot more knowing that. Like if I just heard Mm. it passing by, it'd be like, yeah, some good spa jams, some good meditation, (laughs) you know, uh, music. but, But it is, right? I mean, and it's also like, it's incredibly like evocative of like shamanistic Icaros and yeah, I, it's, it is great. I, I, I was listening to it just before this actually, just, just mm. relaxing, but, um, yeah, I would certainly hope so. <laughs> I, I actually was listening to it right before this as well. So doing um, burpees. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, man. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I wonder, like you mentioned how he could have faked his way through 
the record or in made a rap record instead. I actually wonder if that's true. You know, I feel like that was a lot of his tension from just some interviews I'd heard with him uh, prior to him releasing the record that he talked about his frustration of like wanting, trying to do, you know, verses on things and just not being able to. And to me, what that suggests is that like, he is, I mean, he's such an original artist, you know, even in his outcast days, um, that he quite possibly can only do what feels authentic to him. Mm-hmm. And he, he just can't do something that doesn't. And that's where, it, you know, years of tension came from him was him being like, my modality is rapping, but I can't do it because it doesn't feel right right now. And like, I can't even imagine what that would be like to wrestle with that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, I ima- I can imagine it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, just because I, I would imagine you go through this as a creative that there, you know, you've established the schedule for yourself through, through the highest part of your mind, right? You, you decide this is what I'm going to do. And some days I don't feel like doing that. Like some days I don't feel like working on something or like I was just saying before, like I released this solo video a couple of days ago and there's just always this intense period of like getting everything right and getting every little, trying to get rid of all the little wrinkles and get it ready to go to a place where I'm happy with it. And I don't always feel like doing that shit, but you do it because you, in some higher part of your own mind, you've decided like, this is what I want to do. And I don't care if it makes me wriggle. I don't care if it makes me, you know, feel like I'm putting hard reps in. Like I still like, there's still some part of me that wants to do it. Um, but then there's so much other psychology behind that because you got to get into like, well, why do you want to do it? What, what is it about it that you don't like? And where is that all coming from? But I imagine you must deal with that too, right? Like not, not wanting to like do whatever it is. But I mean, after so many reps, so many hundreds of podcasts, hundreds of posts, I don't, what are, what is your psychology like around all that? Yeah. Like I, well, first off, I don't always want to do things just to be yeah. crystal clear <laughs> on that. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I would prefer most of the time to just be like laying on the couch, staring at the ceiling, you know, like I, that's what I enjoy. Um, but yeah, like I, I do enjoy, you know, the work that I do, but there are days or times where, or certain activities, you know, aspects of it that like, I don't want to do, but I just really like whenever I noticed that resistance rising in me, you know, it was probably like about five years ago when I really started noticing like, okay, I'm starting to get kind of burned here or, or ultimately I think it's the other direction. I think it's that I was so enthusiastic about doing what I was doing that I kind of didn't even notice the stuff that wasn't like palatable to me. I was just like, yeah, this is all part of the thing. It's so exciting. And I think whenever that kind of finally quieted down and I was like settled into kind of a longer groove of like, okay, I'm doing this thing now, then the stuff that I didn't really like doing or, or times where I didn't feel like doing it, that kind of started to become more apparent. I started to feel it mm-hmm. more. And, you know, I started thinking about it and I thought I just need a kind of a mindset shift around it. And it's like, okay, so even though I'm doing what I like doing, it's still work. And with any, it's a job, you know, and with any work, with any job, there's going to be aspects of stuff that you you have to do because it's, it's a necessity for the entire operation, but you don't necessarily love it, you know? And so that's kind of the way I look at it mindset wise and just thinking about it in that way made it pretty easy for me to just kind of get it done and just get on with it and and move on. So there are certainly things that come up or times where I don't feel it, but I'm just like, you know, I got to knock this out. It's like even like responding to a million emails. It's like, right, I don't want to do that, yeah. Yeah. but it's like, well, let me just sit down and, and knock them out real quick and get it done and move on. So so yeah, I feel it, but I just kind of look at it like that and it makes it easier for me to to just go ahead and take care of. And yeah. um, I'm not a procrastinator at all. Like I, I really am very much someone who would rather just plow through something 
So, cause I want my, like one of my main goals is to keep my like mental real estate as like open and free as possible. So yes. I don't want to yeah. have that like, oh, I gotta go do those emails or whatever in the back of my brain. I just want to knock it out so I can move on to other stuff. My friends, this podcast is brought to you by Factor. One of the things that's really important to me is keeping my mental real estate as clean and as open as possible. So those tasks that we generally have to do every single day as humans to stay alive, I like to make those as simple as possible so I don't have to think about them, don't have to make decisions. Make things easy, make things work for you instead of against you. And Factor is definitely a way that you can do that. They are America's number one ready-to-eat meal delivery service. They can help you eat well for breakfast, lunch, and dinner with chef-prepared, dietitian approved ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. I've eaten them, and out of all the different meal delivery services, they're definitely the best tasting and easy to prepare one out there. And their meals are great. They have all different types uh, of things you can choose from as far as like uh, protein plus, calorie smart, keto, vegan, whatever it might be, whatever you're interested in that area. But I have to say that the thing that has really just blown my mind that I've been obsessed with is their protein shakes and their fruit smoothies. They've got uh, protein shakes. I've had the uh, chocolate banana one, the cold brew flavored one, and their uh, smoothies. They have a tropical fruit, a banana one, a mango one. They're amazing. I've been having those, uh, one of each, every single day. Absolutely love them. So I cannot recommend those enough. So right now, head over to factormeals.com slash hitme50 and use the code HITME50 to get 50% off your order. That is code HITME50 at factormeals.com slash HITME50 to get 50% off. Yeah, that is absolutely the highest-minded way to deal with that shit, and I still struggle with that because inevitably there's all these things that you have to do, and there's things that can wait. And whenever things can wait, in my life, they fucking wait. I always make right. them, I, I, you know, that's something I could definitely get better at. But what you were just talking about, I'm, I don't know if I've ever thought about it quite exactly in this way, but it reminds me of the similarity between any kind of creative project and being in a relationship and how the phases map almost exactly one-to-one. -one. Mm. Because mm -hmm. when you when you start being a creative, you have all of this, these romantic machinations about what it's going to be like and that very much maps over to like your initial infatuation with a person right like you're projecting all of this stuff onto them they're they're not even really who they are as much as they're your own projections about you know from from hormones from unconscious material from whatever judgments you're making about them that you don't even know you're making right but then as time goes on, you start to slowly see it for what it really is. And you start to see whether it's the creative process or the relationship for what it really is. And then, you know, this, the sort of like glitter falls off of it. All of the, like the archetypal projection and subconscious projection all kind of melts off and you're like, oh, this is the reality. And then that's only really when the relationship starts, right? Because like whatever was going on before was projecting. Um, 100%, yeah. And I think a lot, I think that's why over the years, like you and I have seen so many people come and go from the creative process because when it's fresh and it's new and it's got this luster on it, it's like attractive. And you're like, you know, you have all these ideas about what it could be and where it could take you. And ultimately, if you don't fall in love with it for what it really is, or at least find a way to comfortably coexist with it for what it really is, you, you, you'll never find yourself in that place that you imagined or anything even close to it 100 mm -hmm. man yeah no that's true and um i feel like just from talking with a a lot of people over the years that one thing that kind of trips people up is that they get into doing something creative for the outcome right you know they're like imagining like oh i'll do this and then i could do this for a living and then i'll become like a public figure and then i'll you know be able to do this and this and this and it's like that's totally missing the point of it all you know it's like you got to just do the thing that you like doing because you want to do it and it you know energizes your soul 
and then the outcome will come, whatever it may be. It'll be different than what you expect, but you know, there'll, there'll be results. There'll be fruits, you know, from that effort. Yeah. Um, I've been thinking about it like recently as like, uh, you know, for the things that I do, I just like, I don't know. I just kind of have an endless amount of energy for them. Like I just do them. And I was thinking, I'm like, why is that? You know? And I was thinking about it in terms of, I was on this walk and I was looking and I saw this woodpecker in a tree and it was just doing its thing, you know? And I was like, oh yeah, that's what I, that's what it is. Is it's like that woodpecker is that's what he does. Yeah. He's just yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you know, he just goes, he goes and pecks in the tree, flies around, comes back, does that all day. And that doesn't think about it. That's just what he does. And the more he can do it, the better and etc. And I was like, Oh yeah, that's like what I am. It's like, I, I just do this stuff because it's just what I am. It's just what yes, I man. do. And I'll just keep, keep doing it. And that's, that's it. You know? I, man, I think that's such a profound realization, and that speaks directly to why I love Jung so much, and I continuously go back to him, because for him, that capital S self, capital S self thing that I mentioned is like an ontological reality. It's not like an idea, like some idea of like, yeah, you slowly go through your own life and, you know, you kind of find your groove, your, like, no, to him, that already exists. And it's your job as an individual, if you want to live the examined life, to find what that is for yourself. And mm -hmm. that entails a lot of, a lot, just so much. But generally, it entails teasing apart what are all the things, what are like the accretions that I've gained throughout life, just throughout, you know, things being projected onto me by society, by my family, by perhaps like forces we don't understand. And how have those things calcified over who I really am? And how do I get them off? It sounds like, it sounds like Scientology when I put it that way, um, <laughs> but, but you know, it's cause like their, their whole thing on the Thetans or whatever it is. Sure. But, um, but what I mean is like, there's all of this shit, wherever it comes from, it's inherited, it's projected onto you. But ultimately it's, it's protecting you in a way because it's helping you be more comfortable and complacent for sure. Like you can mm -hmm. settle into a more comfortable, complacent life that you feel kind of eh, about, or you can go toward all those curiosities. You can go toward what you're conscience is whispering you can go toward the things that intrigue you and if you really take that path to its logical extreme you're going to go through very uncomfortable thresholds but at least they're uncomfortable on your own agency and toward your own evolution because there's uncomfortable thresholds regardless like i, I don't under i don't really understand why people even settle into the psychology of like I'd rather just take the more comfortable route because I, for me, it's like a, it was always a low level of discomfort, like before quitting my day job. And it felt like discomfort for nothing. You know, it felt like discomfort just so I could exist and contribute to someone else's uh, like egregore to use the esoteric term. Like, <laughs> you know, that word egregore? I don't know, but it's, let, tell me. It's this idea that any group sort of forms this psychic object, like this sort of invisible psychic object. And it sort of accounts for how people get sucked into groupthink. Like like MAGA would be a really easy one. Like how everybody mm. uses the same language, the same, you know, it's like they're not even thinking. It's like they're plugged into something that they're just like regurgitating. Mm -hmm. And I think on a low level, that's whether it's actually like ontologically true or it's just like a functional metaphor everybody's either plugged into someone else's egregore or they're building their own you know they're sort of building their own i don't know where i'm going i don't know what i'm doing but i'd rather do my own thing and and suffer and struggle toward my own thing and that's made all the difference man because even that discomfort that i was describing before about like the parts of doing this that i don't want to do i'm ultimately way happier struggling, you know, and I say that in air quotes toward the thing 
that I'm building rather than, you know, being a battery for someone else's egregore or, or however you want to define it. Totally. Yeah. And I will say your heating levels are off the charts, by Thanks. the way. Well, I don't uh, know if that's good or bad, but it's, it's, I think you got to get rid of them. I think you got to, uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're supposed to drain them out. I also don't um, want to get red flagged for and, and get targeted for, for talking about because <laughs> they seem like they'll go after anybody for mm -hmm. but their their uh their resources gotta be spread thin these days, I would think. One would think so, yeah. Um but yeah, no, I what you're talking about as far as staying in a, a kind of a dulled place and knowing that you're unhappy. I think that's a really interesting one. I've thought about that a lot. And it's like, because it's a testament to how terrifying the unknown is for people. It's like, we all know that growth lives in the unknown. You know, that's why it's growth. You have to go to a new place. You have to move into a new territory internally or externally to experience something new. You don't know what's going to be in there. That's why it's scary. But we know that you have to do that if you want to expand and to experience something fresh and learn more about yourself and get more opportunities or whatever it may be. But I think it's woven into like the, our like animal brain ultimately does not care whether we're happy. It doesn't care if we have a great podcast or write a good book. All it cares about is reproduction ultimately, you know? And so it would rather keep you safe and docile than putting you in a physically vulnerable situation, which on like a deep psychological level, unknown is vulnerable, right? It's because it's yeah. like, well, there, this could be something, this amazing podcast journey is right in, to the forest it's like well we're not going in there because we don't know what type of predators in there so we'll just sit on the couch and keep doing the thing but it's really an interesting thing is that whenever you know if you look at it people are aware that that's the case but then they choose to be unhappy in something that they know is like making them bored and numb anyway yeah. over going into the fear of of the unknown i think it's just an amazing thing to consider you know, yeah. how deeply woven that is into our psyches, you know, but yeah, you know, ultimately like, go ahead. No, I was going to say where, wherever it's coming from, whether it's like mm -hmm. pure evolution by natural selection, or it's just like preservation of, uh, energy or it's some kind of self-protecting mechanism to, cause it, it's the same thing where I was talking to Don Hoffman recently, actually, and we were talking about, because he always uses evolution by natural selection as the sort of foundation for doing this almost like paradoxical move to show how that's not the fundamental reality and there has to be something underneath that. Um, I'm kind of lo losing track of what my point was just there. But, but anyway, wherever it's coming from, it's definitely true that we do these strange things to protect ourselves from the unknown, but also inhibit ourselves from growing. Because like, mm -hmm. let's say, like, let's use an example of something like going on a stage and speaking to 10,000 people. Like most people are not going to be comfortable doing that, even though it could yield them an enormous amount of like clout or, or growth in their profession or whatever it is. So by that measure, your evolutionary fitness would actually go up, right? Because you're gaining something by doing that thing. Yet there's also some kind of mechanism within you that protects you from wanting to do that. So it's almost yeah. like a reverse payoff or a, I don't know. I don't know how you, that's the problem. That's both what's incredible about evolution by natural selection and limiting about it is you can, it's such a good theory that literally any, anything you can map onto it and i think that's part of the reason it's it's stayed relevant for so long is like it's just a great theory and great theories mm -hmm. you can plug anything into and it works yeah in that that analogy that you had about going on stage you know um 
I think that what's happening there is that the stakes can never be high enough than like evolutionary speaking, you know, for it to actually feel completely free of fear or worry. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Ultimately the stakes are your existence, like survival. And so it'd be sort of like, turn that analogy to like, you're on one side of a raging river and there's like a tasty meal on the other side of the river where it's like, but that meal is going to help me survive because it's food. You know what I mean? And it's like, this will increase the quality of my life and keep me going. But going across this river is so dangerous that I might die. And so it's not worth going and get the food to go across the river. I think that's kind of like what's happening um, there as far as like, yes, it increases your, you know, your evolutionary fitness to go do that speaking thing. But fundamentally, it's not as much as it would be to feel the fear of basically like falling apart in front of or being vulnerable to 10,000 people all at once. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, it definitely makes sense. Yeah. An interesting thing I've been thinking about is like, you, you mentioned, you know, these growth paths, you know, that people have. And what I've been thinking about is like that our desires or our goals that we create are actually not what we're trying to achieve in the big picture of our lives, right? It's like, perhaps that what's happening is that we, and this is a particular system of thinking that's really up your alley, which is why I'm I'm pitching it to you because this is your world. Like we have a goal that seems authentic. Yeah. And we start moving towards it and doing what we need to do to achieve that goal. But really what's happening, the reason why we're going for that is the stuff around the goal within us that changes is what we're really trying to work on in the process. And the goal really doesn't have that much to do with anything. It's about us connecting all of these pieces subconsciously that we know need work or growth or maintaining or awareness around them. And that we're like, oh, this thing will serve as the medium in which I can work through all of this other stuff. You saying it's all about the journey? (laughs) Well, (laughs) I suppose. Yeah. yeah, Unfortunately. Yeah, Yeah, no, I know. No, I, I obviously fully agree though. I fully agree. And I also think that there's this nefarious thing that's really self-generated, which is like, we create the goal with an, like, it's what you were talking, alluding to earlier with this idea of success that you would gain from starting a thing or doing a thing, you know, better than almost anyone I know what the reality of getting to that place looks like versus what expectations one could project onto it. And what I mean by this is again, just like the relationship example before, whenever you imagine this idealized outcome, you are saying more about yourself and your current psychological state and what that current psychological state is lacking than the actuality of the outcome. Mm -hmm. Because you're projecting something that you perceive yourself not to have. And then if you achieve this thing in the outside world, that will somehow compensate this thing that you are currently missing. And that is a fundamentally backwards proposition, I think. Um, And in my own experience with the successes that I've had, it's like, I'm not gonna pretend like it's nothing. It feels good to have a success or it feels good to see something do well, but ultimately it does not compensate whatever that thing was that you were missing to begin with. And the only thing that does is this nebulous process of attempting to connect the things you're not aware of with the things that you're aware of. And that sounds very, uh, koan like, but in, in the, in the Jungian sense, it's like connecting the conscious and unconscious. Mm -hmm. And it's, that is always one of the most challenging things for me to communicate as somebody who does a lot of content around Jung and makes videos around a lot of topics that come out of his thought 
because it doesn't look the same for for anybody. Like the, the way that you would go into your own unconscious to find to, to locate those things that you don't know and bring them over the border into your conscious mind is different than how anyone's going to experience it. And you can speak in sort of generality generalities and you can talk about different practices you can do, but the phenomenology of the experience is it's just to get there is different for everybody. Um, but it has to be done because otherwise you go the extraordinarily zigzaggy long route where if you're lucky, you get to the initial goal that you planned out for yourself. And it's like a, it's like a Zen koan or something because it's like you find the ultimate treasure and it's empty or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then you have to make sense of what that's supposed to mean. And you're literally right back at square one and you're like, Oh, I got to do something else other than chase goals and external, um, you know, treasure chests in whatever form. But now I don't know what to do, you know, and you're back and you're right back at square one and you have to, it sounds again, you know, to, to, I'll one up you, one up you on the, 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 the cheesiness of journey and say that it's all go, you know, you have to go within to, to, <laughs> to get it like, but it's true. It's totally true. And it's, it, it is a dance between the inside and the outside. It's, I don't think you can fully do it just by sitting in a dark room and like plumbing the depths of your unconscious and through whatever meditative and active imagination and dream journaling, like, yeah, all that shit's important, but it's a dance. It's like this internal external dance. And it's a dance you've done, obviously, a lot over the years, too. And you might have approached it kind of different than a lot of people do, though, because you you went inside early on in life. And then a lot of the external stuff came after that for you. Mm -hmm. So that that's a what did what did that teach you about approaching goals and and reaching goals? Yeah, well, I did that intentionally, um, mm. which is kind of interesting. And what it taught me was really to sum up everything is live, laugh, love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sam, I, don't, get... I don't think I can, I don't think I can, I can reach deeper into the shit filled pits of hell than that. I think that is the ultimate, uh, cheeses. Um, but what's funny it, is it is cheese. It's cheesy, but it's actually super profound. It's it really, it is the, that is like the all you need in life. Like that is really the the ultimate yeah. <laughs> trifecta. Dude, I talked to a um, a Tibetan Lama not long, not that long ago. Maybe like I guess it was like a few months ago now. Um, but he said something very similar to what you just said. He's like, "You want to be happy? Just go do do it." And it's like, and no, that's it, not very uh, useful to, 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 to some to someone you know who. Like on, on one level, that sounds like the most like stupid, basic, oh, why didn't I think of that? Just be happy. Mm -hmm. But when, but when I think when you've done enough reps of every single emotion and, you know, like someone like him, who's been, he's been like a renunciate doing meditations and getting initiated and just doing this shit his whole life. So he's probably stared at dead, rotting bodies. He's probably done all of this shit. And you just start to realize you're like, oh, I I've experienced all the extremes of where the mind can go under all kinds of various stressors. And I sort of just get this, you gain this ability, this, this mental flexibility to just decide that, yeah, there, there's always going to be suffering. There's always going to be all these things. And I can just still choose to be happy regardless. And I, yes, so I, it's, it's different. It's different. It, it hits different. I think when you're depending on who you're hearing it from. It does. I think that's a really bad teaching though, just yeah. to go tell someone, go be happy. It's like, because he's forgetting that 99.9% .9 of the people that's hearing him say, go be happy, have not done all of the practices that he has. And that's right. what enabled him to have the mental flexibility that you talked about, you know? Um, so not to, yeah, I think it's interesting territory to, to get into, not to sort of shortchange the question you asked me earlier about what was it like yeah, to yeah. consciously move into some of those things? <clears throat> yeah. So like, just as a quick recap, in case anyone is, uh, hasn't heard me talk about this before, essentially I started a music production company. 
um, I got into, I mean, I think people know, but I got into Eastern wisdom traditions, Western philosophy, and various other things whenever I was a teenager, and then studied that intensely and privately, and then started a music production company in my 20s while still deeply focusing on meditation, mind exploration, and, and wisdom, and so forth. And then, um, so basically just my entire life. And then whenever I was in my early 30s, I was still producing music and um, doing, you know, intensely studying all these things. And I was waiting. I was like waiting because I thought, you know, I would like to do something like with, because so fascinating, such a huge part of my life. And I love talking about it with friends. It's all I, I did a lot of the times. But I was waiting until I was like, I need, my ego to just like soften up before I really jump out there because ultimately like a big fear of mine was going into doing stuff publicly, getting a lot of attention and then messing up and becoming drawn into the trappings of, you know, attention and, and just people looking at you as someone to look to, you know, and that fear came from whenever I was, uh, you know, in my, especially as a teenager and especially in my early twenties, I used my mind. I, I was very different, you know, and had a lot of anxiety, a lot of frustration, a lot of, um, just suffering and things. And I used kind of my mind as a weapon to, um, ultimately protect myself from vulnerability, you know? And, yeah. um, so I'd be very sarcastic. I'd be very funny. I would always try and show people how I was smarter than them, you know, and, as a way to kind of control the situation and stay, you know, safe and closed off ultimately. But what that does is you have to bring a lot of ego to do that. You have to really, cause you know, you're obviously you're, it's all ego, you know? Um, and uh yeah so i really like was aware of that and just wanted to make sure that that had i'd been working on like letting go and kind of reprogramming over the years like from the time i was in my early 20s until i was in my early 30s and i thought okay i think i'm like ready now to feel secure enough in where i'm at internally to not have any apprehension about being drawn into you know, my yeah. ego or anything like that. And so, you know, I started doing, you know, podcasts and, and writing and just all the things I, I started doing. Um, but what's funny about that is that then just, just like you were talking about earlier, you know, if you, you have this projection, this narrative of what reality will be like, but it's just a narrative. And what always happens is like sandpaper or a knife reality just starts rubbing against that projection right. Right. <laughs> and slowly right. but surely it grinds through and there you are you know yeah. and, and there you are in my... sitting in in your room in front of a screen just like you were when you were making one one hundredth of the income or had one one hundredth of the of the following or whatever yeah right right yes for sure and in terms of of ego you know what i found was really interesting was that um I was always trying to be like uh, as authentically myself as possible, like on the early days of the podcast. Yeah, I remember. And I, <laughs> and I realized that like even trying to be the most authentic version of yourself, you're still creating a frame in which defines the authentic version of you. Yeah. You know? And so then what's happening is you're actually moving into ego because you're creating this like idealized sort of avatar mm -hmm. or like character of who you are, which isn't to say in those days I wasn't like being authentic. I was, but I was also like leaving out huge chunks of who I was. And I would tell myself, well, it's not in service of the work or whatever. Like, you know, this isn't really like if I go into those places of self, like it's not going to be useful to the information I'm trying to convey to people. Um, but it was kind of a head trip to like work through all of that and like color out, start coloring outside the lines and like allowing, you know, more, more parts of, 
who I really was to come through in the podcast. You know, it's, yeah. it's really interesting. And what's fascinating now is that like 10 years later almost is that obviously now like my following is, you know, 400 times bigger than it was then. And I feel 400 times less concerned with, you know, like showing up in, in ego and how I appear and all those things. Like, I just don't even think about it now. Um, so it's kind of weird how it happens, you know? Yeah. Well, it's like, it's the same phenomenon, I think, with, with like somebody like Andre 3000, where it's just like, to put it back into somewhat solid um, terminology, so this is something people can dig deeper into if they want to, individuating is not is it's not about ego destruction and and this is where i think sometimes some of the eastern ways of approaching this wisdom can be a little bit hard to, it's a little hard to square the circle because sometimes it really sounds like you almost need to destroy individuality to mm -hmm. to reach the deepest stages of realization and I actually think that that's true, but I think it's very impractical for, for most people. So that's one of the reasons I love this paradigm of individuation, because it's not about ego destruction, but it's about relentless ego contextualization and understanding what it is, what its practical function is, and what it's being informed by. Because it, as you're younger and you're decontextualized and you just don't have a lot of experiences, your ego is this natural reaction to its early environment where it's going to, if you, if you have bad experiences as a child, it only has so much information to contextualize those against good experiences, same. And then once you reach the outside world, you just have whatever, whatever this psychological object is that you, you have created over your childhood to interact with the world through. It doesn't have very much context. But then as you get older, as long as you keep asking questions and you keep being honest with yourself, the ego itself should change. And the way that it functions in the world should change. And it should care less about what other people think about it. And it should be more informed by that like calm, placid, internal, I know what my metaphorical woodpecker purpose is, you know, from the example you gave earlier. Mm -hmm. And if it continues to be just a reaction to the outside world, a reaction to whatever's fashionable right now, a reaction to whatever celebrities are doing, and, and you're constantly worried about all of that shit out there, I think that your your ego is driving you more than you're driving it and you're actually creating this functional psycho spiritual piece of art that you're going into the world with and uh wielding mindfully you know i mm -hmm. that's that's why that individuation and jung's approach to selfhood really appeals to me i i do still really like the eastern and the mystical and as you know i'm always deeply deeply into that shit but i also think that there's a limit to how practical it is functioning in the western world of identity and business and all of those things that are messy because what ends up happening is you man you've seen so much of this you've probably unfollowed so many people because of this <laughs> is getting those things tangled up in the ego it creates this like really ugly spiritual bypassing um uh what's that trunkpa book um Cutting spiritual, spiritual material materialism. yeah spiritual materialism like and in a way it's sort of is like i get why you would think that because you live in that world of material and you discovered this spiritual aesthetic you like and you want to try to mix them up and put them together like they go together um and that, that's really hard to tease apart, but I think I think Jung does do a good job uh, helping helping people do that. But anyway, 
Yeah, no, it's it is true, man. I, I think a, one of the like kind of core issues with with the misunderstanding that a lot of people have with Eastern wisdom traditions, in my opinion, is translation. Like yeah. the words that are used to describe certain states or ideas or concepts yeah. or pursuits, um, they have the baggage of Western language and society attached to them. And then they become, the core elements become like memefied and yeah. shorthanded. And so then they're so open to interpretation that people think that they mean something drastically different yeah. than they do, which is, that's why one of the reasons I really, I mean, I haven't done it in a while, but <clears throat> actually I did it two weeks ago, but um, I haven't done like a deep dive. And that's one of the reasons I like reading like the classical texts or commentaries on like the Pali Canon is because I want to know like, what was the original, whenever mm -hmm. Buddha was like, hey, homies, listen to this. Yeah. You know, yeah. Wh what was he actually saying? And I want to read that and then yep. understand what that means and then understand how it got to live, love, laugh. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> and it says, you know, the Dharma should evolve to suit the times that's in there. Mm, and nice. so, hey, man. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's really important what you're talking about. Like, we're so groomed to kind of meet so many different types of authority like in our lives from the very beginning i actually write about this in my new book is like if you think about it we're born parents or authority figures they're telling us like what to do and we it comes with threats like we need to be good and follow their mm -hmm. guidance or else we'll get like punished you know then we go to school and it's like now the teachers are the authority figures and we have to externally do what they say and like learn what they want us to learn or else we get a failing grade and then we get punished by our parents and then we become adults and it's like now the police and government is now telling you what to do and how to live and you better not do this or else you'll get thrown in jail you know yeah um and so the, I extend that in, in the writing to then that's one of the reasons I think that we have such a hard time to not taking our thoughts seriously. It's because all we've ever known is voices of authority telling us what to do and an instinct to feel fear if we rebel against that. And so we have this, once we reach adulthood, we have this, uh, this voice where we're finally free. No more parents, no more school. I can live inside the lines of the law now we've got this new voice that's like you better listen to me i'm the voice in your head and you're like oh oh god i better i better listen to it it's the truth you know um anyway all of that to say that like we're so kind of systematically designed to appease the outside from so early on mm -hmm. that it makes it really hard for people i think um to to listen to their intuitive wisdom of like what they really want to do, what they want to be. It makes it hard for people to stop doing what, to force their way towards things and be open enough to feel where they're being drawn. You know what I mean? To even know yeah. where they're being drawn. And uh, yeah, man, so just talking about individuation is is beautiful because it, I think if anything, it's a, you know, it's a good reminder. I don't think anyone's like, just like shutting down their computer at work right now and they're like i'm out of here <laughs> i heard this i'm and maybe maybe they are for like one percent of you i hope this is the i hope this is the thing that does it for you <laughs> yeah yeah and then also think harder about it yeah <laughs> and remember that doing this won't solve any of your problems uh, they'll just they'll just become clear in a different way yes. um but anyway, yeah, it's just a good reminder to like, oh yeah, I don't have to like always be so influenced by the outside world. I don't have to like take that into account so much. Let me just listen to what feels right to me more and just do that more in life in like in small ways and in big ways, you know? Yeah, man. Yeah. And the clarity around what quote unquote you even are like the voice in your head, 
the these things that we have a foggy nebulous idea of at least of yeah i have an inner dialogue i have these pangs of emotion and nervous system ramp ups or ramp downs that seem to be affiliated with different states of mind like people know that but then understanding how that relates to what the true nature of your mind is or or what's underneath all of that stuff or why you have the reactions you have when certain things happen. Like it's just this slow process of teasing all that shit apart that ne never, definitely never ends. Like there is no end to, I think any good system doesn't really end. I think you can, and I'd be interested to see, hear your thoughts on this as someone who's had a lot of mind altering experiences and mind plumbing experiences over the years is I, I do think there's kind of an end, like an ultimate pinnacle to the experience that you can have, but you don't stay there. And if you did stay there, you'd be abs an absolutely like impotent blob of nothing that never did anything. Um, like uh, Plotinus, that Neoplatonic philosopher who is like the contemplative, he talks about like reaching the summit of the noetic realm. And it's essentially like you, you, you as a being cannot go any further because you have 100% declothed yourself of anything except for everything or, or nothing, depending how you want to put it. Like you reach this place of like pure being pure unity, pure, just I amness. And, and then that's like the peak state, but you can't live in that state. So even if you reach that state, you're still forced to come back down and recontextualize in, in light of that knowledge, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And figuring out how you do that is like, it's almost like a cruel joke in some ways because it's like in one way you've made it to the end and in the other way you have to go right back to the starting point. And it's, it's a, it's a crazy thing to try to balance. And I'm not saying I've a hundred percent achieved that state. I don't think I've ever gotten to that pure of a place. I've had a lot of crazy mind altering moments and a lot of deep profound moments that I felt like were sort of knocking on the door of that kind of an experience. But I don't think I've ever been fully, for extended periods, like immersed in that experience. Um, yeah. And also what does pure mean anyway? I mean, honestly, I don't know. You know what I mean, it's like one of the idealized. Um, um, so yeah, man, like I feel like my perspective is that you go deeply inside to wherever it is that you're trying to go. You reach the floor and you're like, ah, I made it to the floor and the floor shatters and there's more under there. And you're like, oh, let me keep going down and find what's under there. And then you reach the floor and you're like, oh, beautiful, the floor, I've made it. And then that shatters. And then you do that for 20 years. And um, just like you were saying, it keeps coming around and in, in light of the new insight that you have at that level of development, then your view of things changes and so then you you have to kind of start redoing all of the work you did in terms of like perception and just how you know how you're thinking about things um and apply that to your kind of former system of knowledge and ultimately i think what happens is that if you keep doing that you go from being someone who can hear the phrase just go be happy and be irritated to someone that can say the phrase, just go be happy and know what that means, right? Of course, I guess the key is being a good speaker and ability to communicate yeah. that in a, with more nuance. But, you know, that's really what happens. It's like you're still living life. You're still the same. It's all still happening as it was. But what's changed is that you are you have kind of smashed and folded and expanded your way of seeing reality enough to where... Um, you just have this broader, more nuanced and more, I think, universally connected and open way of seeing yeah. things, but it just never stops. It's like, cause the mind, the arising, it's like, does the arising of conscious material ever stop? Like, no, no. like mental formations, <laughs> like that's, that's always arising. It's like a, a 
kind of a sparkling spring that just never stops. And so Other than if you're under like anesthesia or you take like 5-MeO or something yeah. where you're completely annihilated and all of your barometer for self just goes away. Um, yeah, death anyway, will yeah. stop it. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Perhaps, yeah. Um, but so it, it's just the same. It's like there's no bottom. It's like there's no, because there's no bottom to where the stuff comes from. So you can keep going and going and going. I think that to me a useful thing that I considered one day was like, do you need to keep going? You know, and it, I think that the answer is no. I think that a per there's so much sort of like meaning based on like success in Western culture, especially in American culture, where it's like, you need to get out there and, and like working in as a you know receptionist isn't good enough. You need to be the CEO, you know what I mean? You need to keep escalating. You need to keep doing better and better and getting a raise and getting promoted and or growing your business or whatever. It's never enough. And that's really built into us. Like status is such a huge part of, you know, what we're told is meaningful. And so I think that I've watched that translate into like inward pursuits in myself and others where you're like, no, I have to keep going. I have to keep getting promoted, you know? And it's like, no, you, you just need to go where you need to go. You need yeah. to go as deep into this stuff and bring it into your life so much so that you feel what you sought to feel. It's like, do you feel peaceful? Do you feel happy? Do you feel less reactive? Can you access love? Can you live, love, laugh? You know <laughs> what I mean? And yeah, if you yeah, can, yeah. then cool. You don't have to be like, I'm going to be a scholar, you know? Yeah, um, I think it's an important thing to consider because a lot of people will like get to a place where like, well, I feel pretty good now. Like I'm meditating, you know, a couple of days a week. I'm, you know, I feel more self-aware and, and like my, disrupted my old negative behavior. But then they're like, you know, like I have, should I, am I failing now if I stop mm -hmm. doing, you know, that? so it's good to know that you're not. Yeah. Yeah. There, this makes me think of two different things. One is, have we talked about the word anagage before? And the I sort think, of anagogic. I think we did though. like 40 minutes ago. Okay. Um, so there's this word. You'll hear people like uh, Dr. John Vervacki use it a lot. And it's this word, anagage. And what anagage means is essentially this quest to continually evolve or quest toward truth with no expectation of ever arriving there. But that you are making progress that matters, but just not with the expectation of arrival, like an open-ended, like I'm going to continually be contextualizing, always be learning, always improving. And I love that. And, it, and it's, and it's exemplified by like the Plato's cave myth of like, you're realizing you're living in a lower level slice of reality where for people that somehow don't know this, um, myth, it's essentially like the proto-matrix myth of most people are doing something akin to living in a cave where they're not seeing the real world. They're just seeing shadows projected on the wall of things happening. And like, they think that's what reality is. But then one person starts questioning and they eventually make it out of the cave. And they're like, holy shit, the sun exists. And that's what this is like and of course you never get to the point where you like see the sun and you have the ultimate realization and now you know everything but you can get closer and closer and closer and i really really like that paradigm of seeking and evolving because i'm sure this is something you you notice especially as we get into this age now where it's like all right i guess we got to admit we're like in middle age and middle-aged is followed by old and that like, you know, probably physically peaked, probably, you know, you know, getting liter literally getting to the point where our libido and en like energetically is decreasing over time. And you can do one of two things. You can fight against that and pretend that that's not happening, or you can get interested by it and be like, okay, in what ways am I still growing? 
And if you choose to align yourself with this, this anagogic pursuit, you, you evolve and individuate into death. And a lot of people believe that death is sort of like the, uh, Joseph Campbell has this amazing quote that speaks to this. It's something to the effect of like, death is like the, death is the final grand swoop of your success. If you live life in this way, like it feels like you, you did like you lived your life the best you could. You never stopped pursuing wisdom. You never stopped learning. And it's like, you fucking did it. Like, great job. Versus if you try to protect yourself from that and run away from it, it becomes this this thing that's going to get you. And, you know, like, oh, I got to smooth out this wrinkle. I got to uh, get this nice car so it distracts people from the fact that whatever, you know, psychological gymnastics. So, so I really like that. But this... It also speaks to what you were saying before about how learning some of these native words completely opens up new pathways to wisdom, like whether it's Pali and Sanskrit or it's ancient Greek, like sometimes these words lead you down incredible paths of insight. Like anagage was one of those words for me where it's just like, whoa, a continual open-ended climb toward truth without yeah, any yeah. expectation of ever getting to the finish line, like, damn, that's profound as fuck. Um, it made me, uh, I, I have, I have more, but if you want to, if you want to riff on that, I won't, I won't <laughs> yeah, keep yeah, I elaborating. Mean, the, the first thought I had was that I like what you're saying in terms of like being death, you know, death is being done. I was thinking about that recently whenever I was, I was thinking about like how, people get nervous because they think there's like stakes, but there's really not any stakes in life. There are rarely stakes in life. You know, like we put so much pressure on things that we get nervous and anxious about it. And then we sort of get in our own way and whatever, but really it's so uncommon for there to be stakes. Even death, there are no stakes because we're supposed to die. So if you die, yeah. things are going well. Like that, then that really made me laugh when I thought about that. It's like, yeah, yeah, you're doing great. And so it's funny that you mentioned, you know, the same thing. It's like, oh, good job, Com mission complete. You yeah. know, that's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, man, I, ugh, man, I, not a lot of people can get to that place. I think intellectually, I can get to that place, but if I'm like actually in the pain and in the process of dying, I don't know if I'm going to feel that. Well, of course man yeah it's it's you, you shouldn't want to feel that really it's like die, i mean it's you, no one wants to die you know i mean no one that's you know not immensely suffering i guess i should say um but i think just learning to try and accept it and really confront the the reality of it is valuable because that's like, you know, speaking of translation things, you mentioned corpse meditation earlier. And uh, I've done that, not with humans, but with animals before. Yeah. And it sounds dark, you know, it sounds really macabre to people. But the point of it is not to just fixate and meditate on something that's dead and rotting. It's to really get the delusion out of the way yeah. and see what happens. And it's in service of compassion. It's in service of so that when you go back to your daily life and you get irritated or you start thinking negatively about someone or yourself or you get pulled into something that's distracting you from the present, remembering that like, oh, right, this is all total nonsense. And what really happens is that we have a handful of decades left if we're lucky until we melt away into the infinity forever and ever and ever. And it's like, just keeping that in mind is like a profound reminder, you know? And yeah. And so it's, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's good to, to remember that, to keep the nonsense away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At least really reframes in that memento mori kind of contextualizing way of, man, whatever mundane bullshit that I'm fixating over right now, it just check in. I like some, I mean, obviously a lot of people have adopted that as a sort of, you know, daily practice, like reflecting on memento mori, like stoicism, Ryan holiday, mm -hmm. all that stuff. And I think that's hugely important. Um, 
it also meant like there's something like I don't think a lot of people I don't think Buddhists would think of it in this way or you would think of it even in this way necessarily but the other thing to think about when you're doing something like that seems really macabre like a corpse meditation is like what do most people do if they see something like that like everybody can immediately imagine like you see roadkill and you go oh like you just recall and go oh I don't want to see that you know mm -hmm. think about okay let's investigate that impulse why don't you want to see it? Because it's scary. Because it reminds you of death. It makes you think, man, some things die senselessly. I could die senselessly. I don't want to live in that world. So I'm not going to look at it. You know, like that mm -hmm. might be something similar to a script that might run or, or approximate something like that. But if you instead like stay right there, stay right there, stay right there in that like thing that you're uncomfortable with, you desensitize to it to an extent. And some people think that, oh, that, that's bad. But what's another word for desensitization? Making conscious. Like I took that thing that was exerting control over my behavior inside in a dark place. It came out. I didn't like it. I pushed it away. I distracted myself from it. Push it back down in the shadow. It's I don't have to see it anymore. But if you instead make a habit of every time that kind of stuff happens, you grab it. And you're like, nope, I'm going to look at this until I accept it or until I acknowledge it or until I just can't take it anymore. Like, that's the difference, man. Like, that is the difference in so many things. And I'm not, there, there's a limit to it. I'm not saying like I'm looking up like <laughs> terrible shit all day long. And, and this is a question that I struggle with, like answering for myself is like, how much of that is good for you and is part of this quest versus your you don't need to go that dark. You don't need to look at like what's happening in Gaza all day long. You know, that shit yeah. isn't good for anybody, but you, I, I do also feel some responsibility personally and strangely on like behalf of humanity to like acknowledge those things as real, because if you don't acknowledge them as real, that's ultimately what perpetuates that behavior again in the future is everyone looking away and being like, Nope. And then it, it, in a certain sense allows it to continue. So yeah, it's a, it's a very difficult thing to balance, but I think most people probably aren't letting that shit come into their conscious mind enough. Right. Yeah. No, I, I mean, there's, there's definitely, it's one of those things where once you get the message, you can hang up the phone. You just yeah. have to, you know, and I, I love what you're saying. I think it's really true. It's, it reminds me since you're a, a young Ian fella that, that quote that's so great that is something to the rings around the thing of like um i think i know what you're gonna say yeah which one which one the one um until you make the unconscious conscience uh -huh. it, um it will you'll uh damn it i'm forgetting the middle part but the end <laughs> is you will you will call it fate like you yeah. will you will think that it's um You'll, you'll think that it's fate, but it's really just your unconscious projections leading you to the destination as if it were a predetermined outcome. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, yeah, man. Well, uh, yeah, let's, let's wrap this podcast up, man. Let's do it, um, we've done it. Um, good to be back here with you and on the new show. And, um, also, you know, I, I thought that this episode would be a nice, like Christmas, you know, I'm going to drop this on, the week of Christmas, warm and fuzzy. Some of the, you know, there's yeah. all the fans of the the old, you know, it's same podcast, but the Get classic. Your favorite family member a corpse to meditate well, on. Well, that's what, that's exactly <laughs> where I was going. Where I was going was yeah. like, you know, all of the the long term old school fans. You know, I know would enjoy a return of Michael Phillip, and uh, and yeah, and so you heard it first. I mean, this is what we're saying on this this holiday week is go stare at dead bodies. That's what I was saying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Well, thanks again for coming on. You got it, man.